Stephanie. Good morning, everybody. My name is Dee, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and it is a privilege for me to uh, take some time and lead us through this Samuel passage. Um, Some of you are probably aware that each um, week we have four different readings that guide us in our journey together. Um, There's a reading that comes out of the Old Testament, which is the one that was just read. There's typically a psalm that's part of the reading. There is a gospel reading and a second New Testament reading. And they are the readings through the course of the year that take us through a good portion of Scripture. And it's kind of on a three-year cycle um, that we follow, though we're not uh, um, in any way mandated to do so. Sometimes we divert from that. But there are some very powerful scriptures this particular week. One of them is Psalm 16. That's one of the readings for this Sunday. And it's a wonderful passage. It's the one that uh, we draw our notion of walking backwards into the future from. It's speaking about walking the pathway of life with the eternal pleasures in God's right hand and finding joy in God's uh, presence or God's face. And It is a wonderful passage that we've probably made reference to before. The Hebrew passage, oh my goodness, that is such a rich passage that speaks about what Christ has done for us as he um, offered the sacrifice once for all. Beautiful passage. Even the Mark passage, um, a wonderful one that's part of the reading for this week. I'm not sure looking at all for why I have chosen the first Samuel passage, (laughs) that's not nearly as elegant, nearly as beautiful, nearly as uh, symbolic, Um, but for whatever reason, we are digging into this passage. There are some very important reasons to me. One is that we're talking for a few weeks this month about family matters. That's the title of last week and this week. And this story is about a family I would like to say right up front that there are a lot of characteristics of this family that I hope we don't emulate. It is a family with significant number of problems. I hope you know that about Scripture. We don't go to every story and say, we're going to try and live like they did in Scripture. That would be disastrous. Instead, we go to the word to learn And out of the stories, we draw that which we think God is teaching us to help us be better and to be more like Christ created us to be. This is one of those stories. One of those stories where there's so much that um, I hope we can learn from in some ways of how things didn't go well. But then at the same time, some very beautiful, powerful pieces of what Hannah did that went well. This is really the story of Hannah. Hannah who had a rather difficult journey. Difficult for many, many reasons. Her husband had two wives. She was one. The other wife was uh, Penina. Penina had numerous children. We don't have in this particular passage the number of children. Hannah had none. The issue that created so many problems here is that Penina taunted Hannah with the contrast between the two. My guess is that some of the taunting was blatant and obvious and overt. My guess is 
knowing family dynamics, that a lot of it was subtle, sly. The kind of statement or action that if you're the recipient, you know what was intended. But as soon as you try and explain to someone else what it was that happened, that other person will try and reframe it for you, will try and cast it in a positive light, will try and say, oh, you're just, you're looking at this all wrong. Certainly that wasn't what was intended. And you're left feeling isolated, alone. Nobody gets it. It can be an incredibly painful moment or series of moments or period of time where nobody seems to quite understand how you're the target of some of those things. And as well-meaning and probably well-intentioned people are who try and cast it in a positive light or spin it well, they leave you in a posture of pain worse than when you shared it because now you think that everyone else thinks you're either nuts or they don't get it or maybe you are the problem here and it's not something else that's happening. Well, that's what's happening to Hannah. Penina is making it very, very difficult on her journey. So difficult that at times she completely loses her appetite. She finds it difficult to function. It's overwhelming at times to her. It is a family that has its own set of dysfunctions. And Penina is not the only problem. But maybe I should back up a little bit first and say a little bit of the context of this story. Why is it even in Scripture? What's it doing here? Well, last week we talked about Ruth, and Ruth was set in the time at the very end of the reign of the judges in this period of history for the Israelite people. Judges ruled. It was a theocracy. God was in charge, but the judges made decisions. The people have been complaining they want a king like everyone else. They want someone to rule so that they can look like every other kingdom that they know of. They want to be like the people around them. Well, the child that Hannah is going to eventually have is Samuel, and Samuel is the one who anoints the first two kings of Israel, Saul and David. We find that anointing of Saul taking place near the beginning of this first book of Samuel. In the middle of this book, we have the blessing or anointing of David, but he doesn't take charge or take rule until the beginning or near the beginning of the second book of Samuel. This is probably at one time all one book, but for our reading purposes, those who have included it in Scripture have broken it up into two different books. So these two kings, such significant figures in the life of the Israelite people, they are anointed to be king by Samuel, the priest. Samuel is the child that's born to Hannah out of her agony that we read about in this first chapter. She's an amazing woman. It's another amazing story of incredible women in Scripture. 
but her circumstances are not the kinds of things that you long to emulate, <laughs> that you want to be in her shoes and try and live a life like Hannah. Penina was not her only problem. Her husband, Elkanah, he was, it seems like, generally speaking, a good man, certainly a man who sought after God. He went to the annual feast, made the pilgrimage with his family. He offered the appropriate sacrifices. He did the kinds of things that you would expect somebody who had a heart after God to do. But there were other ways in which he just seemed clueless. The low point we find in this chapter 1, in verse 8, where he sees Hannah, her countenance is completely distraught. She's finding it difficult to eat. He recognizes all of these things that are going on in her journey, and his response is so poor. He says, so, aren't I enough? Very narcissistic. All of a sudden it moves from being about her to being about him. All of a sudden his viewpoint is, I should be able to cheer you up because you're married to me. Aren't I better than ten kids? What? It is as if he completely missed what she needed in that moment. My guess is he missed it more than once. The reason I guess that is because I've missed it more than a dozen, two dozen, three dozen times in my journey. And so Hannah, once again, feels alone, isolated, a husband who misses it. So Hannah goes to church. And there at church, she lifts, lifts up her agony to God. She's there as part of the whole family tradition to go, as many people are at church because of a family tradition to go. But she's taking advantage of the moment, and she is offering up her prayers. You can't really hear her, but you can see her mouth moving, is what Scripture says. And Eli and his sons, um, some of the worst at doing priestly business, I mean, Scripture says that. The sons, particularly Phineas and Hophni, they just were horrendous at church work. They, it seems, looked at church work as a way by which they could get what they wanted. It just was a poor representation of what church ought to be in terms of representing God. Well, she goes and she offers her prayer, and Eli, the father of these two, sees her. Doesn't really overhear her, because she's not praying out loud, but her facial countenance and her gestures, her movements, make him believe that she's just simply drunk, and so he rebukes her and says, you just ought to stop getting so drunk before you come to church. Wow, once again, the church just does a great job of 
making wonderful connections with people. That's not the last time we've done that. And Hannah, to the one place where she thought she might get relief, is left again, feeling alone. No one understands or gets it. No one hears what my heart's cry is. To her credit, she responds to Eli and she says, no, 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 you don't understand. I am not drunk. I'm just praying and telling God what's going on inside of me and asking for God's help. In one of Eli's moments that went well, Eli's response was to bless her and say, may God grant you the answer to your prayers. Here is Hannah, who it seems to me has kept running up against over and over again The places in her journey where she ought to have a listening ear, a compassionate heart, a kind shoulder to be a recipient of her hurt and her pain. So why this story this morning? It's a story that tells me a number of things. It tells me, among other things, that God's not looking for perfect family units for God to do God's work. We don't have perfect family units. And God isn't waiting for us to get our families fixed up for God to step in and do what God wants to do. And I say that whether yours is a household of one or a household with multiple generations of 15 people living in one place. This story is a story about family connections and we could speak about the family of God and its dysfunction. We can speak about our biological families and their dysfunction. You can speak at whatever level you want, but God's not waiting for us to fix things up to come into God's presence That's antithetical to what the gospel message is all about. God invites us as we are, who we are right now. I believe so deeply in the power of Christ to begin to move us in ways that help us to become healthier and help us to live into the image that Christ has stamped on us, but God's not waiting for us to get that right. Just the opposite. God's invitation is to all of us now, wherever we are, whatever our circumstances are, Whatever the dysfunction of our family, our own personal lives, our relationships, God invites us to give all of that to God. I hope that we avail ourselves of all of the wonderful tools and resources we have to help with our struggle in relationships. If it's in the context of parenting, I hope that we go to workshops that help us to learn more. I hope we learn from others who have been on the journey before us. I hope we learn how to parent with natural consequences. 
I hope we learn how to set boundaries, both for ourselves and for our children. I hope we learn how to be present in the moment and give not only quality time, but quantity time as well. But I also know that there are times when those techniques and methods feel like they are miraculously changing our journey and have brought about some wonderful things. And then there are other times where we've incorporated everything we know to incorporate and we still face some incredibly difficult, painful, hard issues with questions that seem to have no answers and problems that don't seem to have solutions. And in those moments, we don't need five more how-to manuals. We don't need people coming alongside of us and saying, hey, just in case you're looking for a few suggestions, let me tell you about some parenting things that I think might help you. Sometimes what we need is for somebody to say nothing but just to be present. Sometimes we need somebody simply to exhibit kindness, understanding, and patience. Sometimes we just need somebody who lets us know they love us through whatever we're facing. Same thing is true in our relationships with others with whom we have a long-term relationship. For those who are in marriages, I hope that we learn how to avail ourselves of the resources that are available to us. Long-term friendships, people whose lives journey with us together, I hope we learn how to engage in active listening. I hope we learn how to be fully present with them and invest in powerful ways. I have the chance periodically to work with couples who are planning to get married. And I I use a survey instrument called Prepare and Rich, and it's a wonderful instrument that I've used for decades. It provides about a 25-page printout of ways in which a couple can explore their areas of conflict, areas to improve their communication, areas for growth, and areas of strength that they can build upon. One of the components of this survey is a component that I share with every couple with whom I work, and it's an item that's called idealistic distortion. What it refers to in most all tests is that we have a tendency to want to please the test giver. And so we sometimes paint a better picture than actually exists by answering the questions the way we think someone would want them answered, and it's called idealistic distortion. This particular survey has that, and woven into the component as well is the way in which we put on rose-colored glasses in regard to marriage, or at least some people do. So I will get this survey back, and almost without exception, and this is certainly not true of everyone, but most often, young couples on their first marriage typically have very, very high idealistic distortion scores. And I take it upon myself to try and present to them ways in which they might have expectations that are higher than might be met by this wonderful, glorious marriage that they're about to enter into. 
And I'm not wanting to burst the bubble. I'm not wanting to destroy their hopes. But I do want them to be realistic so that when some things happen, they won't think it's the end of the world. One of the questions that's woven into the survey is, um, there is a statement, and then you have to say strongly disagree, disagree, neutral, agree, strongly agree. And the statement is, there is nothing that could ever happen um, that my spouse or my partner could do that would make me love him or her any less. And so many people (laughs) who were in this first wonderful, hopeful relationship say strongly agree, there's nothing at all that could ever be done. And I don't know if this is the best thing or not, but I start listing things that could possibly be done. So would you (laughs) question your partner's love if this took place? Yeah, but that would never take place. Oh, right, that never happens. Okay, let me offer another one. (laughs) Until finally I try and at least ease down that notion of um, idealism enough so they're they're not surprised in a relationship as things unfold. The opposite end of the spectrum is also true. I had the wonderful privilege of working with couples that are on sometimes their second or third relationship. Their idealistic distortion scores are usually in the basement, just so low (laughs) that it's almost overly realistic. So much so that oftentimes I'll go through scenarios to try and build up the hope and the expectation a little bit, to try and infuse back into the relationship some of that um, hopefulness that drives people forward into the future. All of those things are important when we are using tools to make our relationships better. But sometimes, the things that happen don't call for three more books on relationships. Sometimes that's helpful, but there are times when you've put into practice all of the things you know to put into practice. And there's still a breach, still a conflict, still pain of what is not working. It's in those moments you don't need the top ten list of things to do. You hope that there might be someone who will just stay beside you through the journey. Who will know when to say nothing? And when something is said, to say something that just draws them alongside on the journey. This month is a month of prayer. It's not the only month that our church prays, it's an emphasis as we head into the Advent season. It's really a beginning point. It's a launching as we move into this coming year of what it means to be a church of prayer. I asked, what do we get out of this passage? One of the things is that God is not looking for perfect people because none of us are. Not looking for perfect marriages, perfect families, perfect relationships 
God wants us, you, me, just as we are. And for you to know that you're not alone. You're not the only one who has gone through what you're going through. In fact, it may be your story that helps somebody else who's just stepping into the same storyline in a very similar way. The other piece that I hope we get out of the story is this. I love what Hannah did. It's, to me, the light in this passage. Hannah went to God. My mother told me something. I'm going to paraphrase it. But she told this to me, and I heard it more than once. In reference to her relationship to my dad, she'd say, Dee, often the best way for me to get to your dad is to go to God. She's absolutely right. The best way to get to my dad was for her to go to God and allow God's work in my dad's life to begin to initiate change. But it's not the only thing that happens when we go to God on behalf of someone else. It begins to change us because God has an opportunity to respond back into our life of things that we need to change in our journey. My relationship with my wife Kay took a dramatic turn when I realized that it wasn't all about me. And in first service, she let out a big amen on that. And <laughs> she'd had a hanky, she probably would have waved it, I think. <laughs> but it's something I'm still learning. It's not like there's an aha moment, even though there is kind of that moment, but it's not like it's all over at that moment. It's learning that sometimes Elkanah's words slip out of my mouth, and I need this reminder of God, oh God, I'm sorry again. And then when I realize that it's not all about me and I start praying on behalf of my wife, so often before any change needs to or does happen in regard to Kay, God's speaking back into me and pointing things out and saying, okay, let's talk about the things that you can do so that this is changed from what God's doing in my life. So this morning, in our time of prayer, we this Last week, we were praying about our own journey, the prior week about forgiveness and confession, this last week about how God's working in our life and stepping into those places where God might be calling us. This coming week, we're praying for our church, but I also want it to be a continuation of the end of last week, which was praying for our families. Who could you be praying for? This morning, maybe you already are. Just need an encouragement to say that's the right thing to be doing. That's the Hannah approach. It doesn't always work out for you or me as it worked out for Hannah. That's not what the message of this passage is. It's that Hannah went to God. 
Who is that for you this morning? Maybe a family member you've not thought of for a while. Maybe it's somebody who's been on your mind constantly and you've said, God, are you there? It seems so silent. Don't leave it there. Keep praying. And allow in this movement of to God and down to the people for whom you're praying, listen and allow God to speak back into your own life. However God calls you to move and to change and to be. And this week as we pray for our health as a church, how can we be a church that doesn't assume we know everybody else's circumstances making assumptions about the current state of somebody's journey, but how can we be compassionate, faithful, kind, listening ears, a companion on the journey, slow to speak, quick to listen? Could we be a church like that? We're going to spend a few moments in prayer. Here is my hope for you this morning as we pray that you might consider changing posture. Sometimes we simply listen. Sometimes we close our eyes. But the engagement of some other portion of our body implies that prayer moves us. So it may be to stay right where you're at and just hold your hands out open, receiving whatever God has for you this morning. For others, it might be hold your hands out, palms down, letting go of whatever it is you've been clinging to for so long. Some of you might want to stand up in God's presence. Some of you might want to kneel down. Kneeling has always been very important to me. The scripture that says that every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I don't want it to come to a time where I have to be forced to bow my knees. So in prayer... I so often like to bow my knee as my effort in that scripture to say, God, I want to do this by my choice. Some of you might want to come up here to the altars. You might want to go back to the back corner and pray with somebody back there. Change something. Maybe it's just bow your head. That's fine. As we pray, I will lead us through a little bit of guided prayer. We'll start off with just a few moments of silence. We'll close with the Lord's Prayer. And then we'll sing prayerfully some of the songs that the band has prepared for us this morning. Let's go to prayer together as a church. Present to God the circumstances of your life. It's not as if it's new news to God. God's aware of all that's going on, but the invitation in Scripture is to bring to God those things that are on our heart. And so, just simply in your prayer time, 
right now make mention to God of those circumstances that you bring with you to this moment. The joys, the hurts, the anticipations, or the pain. It is part of confessionally coming to God and saying, this is where I am, Lord. You know it, but I need to say it because in saying it, I present it to you. So take a few moments and allow the things that you brought with you this morning to be offered in prayer to God, simply acknowledging them, confessing them. I'd like you to take a few moments and lift up a family member, a a family member that you've not prayed for in quite some time, a family member that maybe hasn't been in your heart or mind very much, but this morning, for whatever reason, you would like to lift up that person in prayer to pray for their journey, maybe their blessing, Um, a prayer for the circumstances that they might face. Lift that individual up in prayer this morning. I'd like you to take a few moments and pray for the person that is so very close to you. The relationship that um, carries such weight in your life and the circumstances that might surround it. Whoever that person is, will you lift up your prayers on their behalf and listen as God might speak back into your life in these moments as well. Pray on behalf of that individual this morning. I'd like you this morning to pray on behalf of your church. Pray that we would be a church that lives into what it means to truly be the body of Christ. Pray for the children. Pray for the youth. Pray for your church staff. Pray that we would be a healthy church in our practices of compassion and giving, volunteering, volunteering, 
faithfulness. Whatever God brings to your mind this morning, pray for your church. Lord, these are the prayers of the people this morning. Will you please hear our heart's prayer? Will you keep us faithful in prayer, Lord? Will you draw us into places wherever we might find ourselves pausing pausing and offering up our hearts cry to you give us strength and courage to keep praying forgive us Lord for the many times in which we have lived as if we are our own resource when our resources are so limited Lord but yours are unlimited Forgive us, Lord, when we have attempted to be you, to be the Messiah, to be the one who saves situations. Instead, Lord, teach us to be dependent on you as our Savior. Forgive us, Lord, when we have turned to you last instead of turning to you first. For the circumstances we face, And for the circumstances being faced by the people we love, Lord, we give it to you. We trust in you. And you, please, Lord, would you please help us with our lack of trust, our lack of faith, our lack of persistence, our lack of surrender. So this morning, Lord, Please love the people we love. Step into those places where there's hurt and conflict and pain, loneliness. God, may that begin to dissipate and may in its place your touch leave behind a palpable grace that changes those circumstances in profound ways. And so, Lord, together we pray not just as if a memorized scripture offered in prayer, but instead, Lord, a prayer that resonates deep with our heart, a prayer that fills in all the gaps, particularly when we don't even know how to pray, the prayer you've taught your disciples and that your followers have been praying over the centuries. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I'm going to invite the band to come up 
And as they do, I want to say thank you for joining in that prayer that we might be God's church. I want you to know as well that during this time of singing, our prayers continue. And that this is a time where we reflect on what God is teaching us and what God is calling us to do. If you're looking for someone with whom to pray, with whom to talk, again, through these songs after the service, don't hesitate to go back to my left, your right back corner, and use that as an opportunity to pray with someone else and share the journey with you, someone who will listen well and will simply walk with you in the journey that you're on. Let's join together in singing and let our prayers continue. Band, thanks for leading us.